Morning, Grace. Our passage today is the same as last week. It's John 8, 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar, like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Good morning. I feel like I need to say a a little word about Matt's exhortation. First, it was awesome, and I'm thankful for it. It's the first ever sung exhortation. I can remember, but second, uh, don't expect that from <laughs> bars a little too high, Matt. Uh, on behalf of the rest of us who exhort, that's well. Welcome back to John eight uh, forty-eight to fifty-nine. If, if you're a guest, just so you know, we we believe that there is a God who is infinitely glorious, who has spoken to us, that is, he has revealed himself to us, which is the only way we can know truly who he is and who we are and what he requires of us, but that he has also spoken sufficiently to us. That is, in his word, the Bible, we know, we're we're told, all that we need to know to live a life pleasing to the Lord. And so in light of that, or because of that conviction, we make our way through the different books of the Bible from beginning to end. That's a normal way we preach at Grace Church. And and so we've been making our way through John's gospel, and we're this this morning at the end of chapter chapter 8. We were in it last week where I began at the end. The whole sermon was basically from verse 58. But welcome back to this passage. And if you were here, you already heard this. If you're not, I'll bring you up to speed a little bit. But in this This passage, 848 to 59, Jesus makes one central claim, and it's found in verse 58, namely that he is God. He says, before Abraham was, I am, and therein took for himself God's most holy name. But rooted in that central claim really are all of Jesus' claims throughout his life on earth. But in this passage, there are three others. And then as a result of that, we see a a single response from those who were hearing him, the Jews who were questioning him. And so last week was the central claim, and this morning are the three subsequent claims and the response 
of the Jews. Here are the three subsequent claims. Jesus says, there is no immorality in me. Second, the Father and I are in a glory conspiracy, an eternal glory conspiracy for one another's glory. And third, eternal life comes from keeping my word. We'll also consider the response of those to whom he made these claims, the Jews, who, in this case, completely rejected everything he said. That was their response. The main takeaways last week, as we considered the fact that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, the main takeaways were worship, to to praise him with all that we have and, and all that we do, and recalibrate every area of our lives that don't do that, that fail to do that. Well, the main takeaways this week then, in light of these three claims and the Jews' response, is to look to Jesus. He is without sin. He is perfectly righteous. He honors God the Father in every way. And so we are right to look to him, to see what it means to live a godly life. What does it look like? When he speaks, he tells us. When he lives, he models it. Second, that we would trust in Jesus, in his word, in his person, in his being, and what he says and does to help us to live as we were made to live. And then finally, to join in. And I I love this. This is my favorite line in the sermon. It'll come later, but it's related to this, this other application, which is to give ourselves to seeking the glory of the Godhead or join in on the divine conspiracy for glory for God. So let's pray then. Let's pray that God would help us to these ends and all that he sees fit. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given it to us and to your people over time, different contexts, different backgrounds, different times from war to peace to slavery to prosperity and freedom, from humble fishermen to well-trained scholars, historians, and shepherds, and Thank you that you give us four different accounts of the life of Jesus, four Gospels, and the rest of the New Testament to interpret them for us. Thank you that you're kind, and I thank you that you've gifted your people, your your larger church, to write songs like we just sang. Where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. Your word alone is sufficient for life and godliness, and so we thank you that you've given that to us. I pray that your spirit would well up inside of us this morning, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. I I pray that not only would we understand this text, this passage, but that we would be transformed duly by it. I pray that all of that would certainly result in our good, our joy, but above all, in your glory. That's why we're made, and that's what we need most. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So that, although I, as I just said, I covered it in detail last week, it's important to say a brief word about Jesus' central claim in this passage, that he was God. The entire passage, the larger passage, that is, which is all of 7 and 8. Remember, this is all of chapter 7 and 8 is Jesus speaking with various groups of Jews and Jewish leaders at the Feast of Booths. The entire passage builds towards this central claim 
as Jesus and the Jews went back and forth. You remember Jesus would make a claim and the Jews would respond and Jesus would respond to that or the Jews would make a claim and Jesus would respond and there was this constant back and forth and it kept building and building and building towards chapter 8, verse 58. The Jews kept insisting, for instance, that Abraham was their father and as a result, they were members of the covenant that God had made with Abraham, and as a result, they were right with God and immune from all of Jesus' critiques. Well, from there, the argument between them followed this windy path to the point that Jesus told the Jews, hey, you keep talking about Abraham. You keep referring to yourselves as his offspring, as his children, as part of the covenant promise that God made with him. You keep doing that. But here's what Jesus said. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Understandably, the Jews were confused. Abraham had, you probably know, lived centuries earlier, over a thousand years earlier. What could Jesus possibly have been talking about, they wondered. They said, therefore, you're not yet 50 years old. What, what What are you talking about, Jesus? And you have seen Abraham? A simple yes would have would have been true. Jesus could have just said, yep, I've seen him. Uh, but it would have, of course, elicited many more questions. So getting right to the point, here's my paraphrase of what Jesus said, and then I'll tell you what he actually said. His paraphrase is this. Yes, I've seen Abraham. I created him, actually. I held him together. In me, he lived and moved and had his being. It is because of me that the covenant with him could be made and was certainly fulfilled. I am the sacrifice that was offered, the lamb that was provided. I am your hope, not Abraham. His hope was rooted in me. If you really understood Abraham and his relationship with the Father, you would believe me. And all of that, because I am one with the Father and the Spirit. I am God. In actual words, he said, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, truly, truly means listen carefully. This is Serious and earnest. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therein, again, taking on God's most holy name. And the Jews understood this perfectly. They knew exactly what he was saying and what it meant. And so it says in verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. That was the penalty for blasphemy, for blaspheming God, for making yourself out to be God, which that certainly would have been if Jesus was not telling the truth. That's what we've already covered. You need to keep that. We need to keep that continually in our minds, both in order to really understand the rest of this passage and also, more importantly, to live the life that God has made you to live. You cannot forget that Jesus is God. I cannot forget. Well, with that, and as a as a means of best helping you understand Jesus' three contingent claims from this passage, I want you to imagine something with Picture this in your mind, all of you, kids too. Uh, try to try to draw this to mind. Someone comes up to you and says clearly and sincerely, in other words, it's obvious they're not joking, they're not kidding around. They come up to you clearly and sincerely and say, that car belongs to me. You're parked, waiting for someone in your family perhaps to come out of the store, and a stranger walks up to your window and commands you to get out and let them drive away in your car. 
Got it? You've drawn it to mind. Imagine yourself in that actual situation. That's not a normal demand, of course. It's unusual. And it's hard even to imagine what they might be talking about. Why would they say that? Where Where is this coming from? What are they getting at? Certainly, you wouldn't just comply under any ordinary circumstances. In fact, it would take something pretty significant for you to even bother engaging them, to even give them a response other than just maybe rolling your window up or calling security or something like that. And so here's the main question I want you to consider within that scenario. If you were to decide to engage them and ask them, why would I do that? Why would I comply with you? What kind of answer might they give you that would convince you to do what they said? What could they say to you that would make you think, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. Okay, and the key within that, or the key that I want to help you understand with all of that, is that for someone to make a claim like that, you need to give me your car. For someone to make a claim like that, and for it to be legitimate, for them to rightly say that to you, there must be some greater claim underneath that you haven't figured out yet. You with me? Does that make sense? In order for someone, some stranger to walk up to you and say, you need to give me your car, and for them to be right in telling you that, there must be some hidden claim underneath that that supports that. Well, in one sense, all of Jesus' ministry was like that. From the perspective of the, of the Jews, it was a long series of unexpected and confusing and even shocking statements and commands and actions. The question always before them, all those who heard him, even the Samaritans when he went outside of the Jewish people, the question always before those who heard and saw him was on what basis can he say these things and do these things that we would accept him at his word? He's saying and doing things that are way beyond anything we've ever encountered and way beyond anything that makes sense in light of what we think we know about him. What's underneath all of that? The things he says don't make any sense unless there's something greater hidden underneath them. And grace, as we saw last week, indeed there was. As Jesus' ministry progressed, and and as his time to be crucified and resurrected from the dead for the sins of the world approached, his words and actions became even more increasingly difficult for his hearers to understand and accept. He started off a little more broadly and a little bit more simply and got increasingly clear and specific in the things that he said and he did, which meant unless there was something even more substantial under all of that, he was even more confusing. And so it prompted the people who saw and heard him to ask more and more questions to trying to get to the bottom of this. We see this especially in chapters 7 and 8, and even more so in our passage for this morning. That's at the heart of verses 48 to 57, all the way up until Jesus finally takes them to the bottom. Like most of the rest of what Jesus said in the first three years of his ministry, remember his whole ministry was about three and a half years, and he's about six months from his crucifixion at this point in John. And so the first three years of his ministry were just like this, 
just just like this, the, the three initial claims he makes in our passage just simply could not have been true. They're big claims all by themselves, but they couldn't be true unless some bigger claim was underneath them. Indeed, Jesus' claims led the Jews to press and ask and investigate until they got to the bottom of, of things. And at the bottom of things, once again, was the fact that Jesus is God. And that, Grace Church, is the key to understanding the three claims and the great question that determines everything. Either it is true that Jesus is God or it isn't. That's the question. The Jews concluded that it wasn't true, and they therefore rejected every lesser claim of Jesus, including the three in this passage. If they were wrong, however, and they most certainly were, every other claim and command of Jesus is to be received as good news with great joy. And that will leave no aspect of our lives untouched. Today is the day to decide. You're confronted with this claim and its implications, and today is the day for you and I to decide once again. Was Jesus telling the truth or not? That leads to the first of Jesus' contingent claims. That is, there is no immorality in him. The passage we considered two weeks ago, chapter 8, verses 31 to 47, ended with these words from Jesus. At the end of that section, Jesus said this, Whoever is of God, and this is as true today for you and I as it was for them, whoever is of God hears the words of God. Not, not just with our ears, but we hear them. We, we know they're from God. We know that they're God's words. And he said as well, the reason why you do not hear them, to, to the Jews who are listening to him at that time, is that you are not of God. There's two claims there that we need to make sure we see plainly. First, he claimed that being of God is a prerequisite to recognizing when God speaks and what he's saying, believing what he says. That would not have been controversial to Jesus' hearers. But the second thing he said was most certainly controversial. His second claim was that they were not of God and therefore that they could not hear God. Grace, if you know anything about the Jewish people, especially those who are listening to Jesus at this time, you know that their entire identity was rooted in being of God on account of being Abraham's offspring. The claim that they weren't by Jesus was to deny their most fundamental understanding of themselves. But here's the key to all of that. More significantly still is the fact that Jesus made those claims as an explanation as to why they were not understanding him. Does that make sense? So Jesus says, if if you're of God, you'll hear God. If you're not of God, you won't. You're not of God, therefore you don't hear God. But he, he said that to explain to them why it is they were not receiving the things that he said. That's pretty shocking. In other words, Jesus' main point was that he was speaking the very words of God to the crowds, and the rejection of it was entirely the result of their mistaken understanding of who they were, which led them to mistakenly misunderstand who he was. They were not of God, Jesus cried, but of the devil. And in response to that, which is where our passage for this morning begins, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that because you say this, because you said what you just said, 
you are a Samaritan and have a demon. I have a child who thankfully lacks the vocabulary to fully express her anger and frustration. Nevertheless, it's always clear when she's trying, when she's trying to draw from the deep recess of her insult well. Well, she had been among the crowd listening to Jesus at this time and her well ran deeper, it would have sounded just like that. What do I mean? The Jews charged Jesus in light of what he said with being the product of an idolatrous, being the product of idolatrous sexual immorality. That's how they understood the Samaritans. There was genuine hatred for them and with being demonically possessed. That was to draw from the very bottom of the insult well. But that just brings us back to the main point. If Jesus is not God, the Jews are right to question everything about him, including his claim to speak the words of God. If he is God, though, and he most certainly is, Grace Church, then his charge, Jesus' charge and his reasoning make perfect sense, and so does his reply to their insults. Curiously, he just sort of set aside the Samaritan charge, but he did reject their claim that he was demonic. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. But more than that, though, in his response, he made a bigger claim still. He claimed that he was not only not the product of immorality, that of his parents, if he were a Samaritan, or a demon, if he was possessed, but he also claimed to have no immorality in him at all. He was filled with righteousness. That is what he meant when he said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. Let me explain. Grace, we cannot honor God in sin. We cannot honor God in sin. So there is an inseparable connection between righteousness, our righteousness, and our ability to honor God. What's more, Jesus wasn't simply claiming to honor God once in a while, here and there, at times. He was claiming to fully honor God at all times. Therefore, he was also claiming to be fully righteous at all times. But grace, as you know, God alone is truly and fully righteous at all times. So there is also an inseparable connection between Jesus' deity and his ability to rightly make the claim that he made. It is therefore precisely because Jesus is God. This first subsequent claim that Jesus made to honor his Father at all times is entirely rooted in the fact that he is God in his first and main claim. It is therefore precisely because Jesus is God that he could rightly claim to be thoroughly righteous, entirely honoring to God, even it is precisely because his hearers rejected that initial claim, that they rejected his teaching. And Jesus says, therefore, you dishonor me. As I honor my Father, as I bring him glory, as I walk in righteousness, you reject me, which means you dishonor me, which means you dishonor him. This means, Grace, that we are right to believe all that Jesus says, that he is honoring the Father at all times and in all ways, that he is perfectly righteous. It means that we are right to believe all that Jesus says and follow him in every way that he calls us to. It is right to look and listen to Jesus, to see and hear what it means to live as God intends. We don't find that by looking within. We don't find that by looking to the world or to the heavens. We find that by looking to the Son as he is revealed to us in the Word. He is without sin. He is entirely righteous in all that he thinks and feels and says and does. He perfectly honors the Father at all times. He is therein the authority and model for all mankind. 
He came to earth to show and tell us what it looks like to live life in the fullest, which we're coming to in John 10, in a fallen world. Consider his life. What do you do with this? How do you respond to this? Jesus is God, and as God, he honors God perfectly in all that he does. What do we do with this? Consider his life and follow him in faith. Reconsider, Grace, every aspect of your life that doesn't line up with his. Praise him for this glorious truth. And in contrast to the response of those who heard him say these things first, listen carefully to his every word in the knowledge that they are entirely trustworthy and right since he is God. Here's the second claim, the second area of contention between Jesus and the Jews concerned whether or not Jesus was sinfully seeking his own glory. And so the Jews had concluded that he wasn't God, which meant they concluded all the other things he said and did were dishonoring to God. And so the question before them is, why are you doing this then? And the implicit charge here that Jesus explicitly replies to is that you're doing it for your own glory. You're doing it to make yourself look good in the eyes of people. Assuming that Jesus was lying about his identity and was therefore lying about his motives, the Jews also assumed that Jesus was pridefully doing the things he did for his own name rather than God's. Well, on the contrary, though, Jesus said, look at verse 50, you do not, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. And then if you skip ahead, he comes back to this in verse 54. Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Which Father? The very one of whom you say he is our God. Well, sort of confession, but I don't think it's a confession that you guys don't already know. At times, I've certainly tried to draw attention to some aspect of myself that I found to be impressive like stretchy jeans and slap your mama seasoning and you know, all these big important things I brought to Grace Church. That is, in some ways, I've sought my own glory. In fact, I don't know that I've ever met someone who hasn't. So it's sort of a confession, but we're all in that together. To help us all appreciate this claim of Jesus that he did not seek his own glory, to help us appreciate how that claim was indirectly rooted in his divinity and to help us understand why it was so offensive to the Jews, i got another question for you that I want you to consider. I know some of you have thought about this carefully. What is the difference between me seeking my glory or, or you seeking your glory for ourselves and Jesus seeking glory for himself? What's the difference? It's the difference between us glory-seeking, and Jesus' glory-seeking? The first part to the answer to that question is in the fact that I've never done anything really impressive to begin with, and then at least not on any meaningful scale. I'm not a, I thought about this. What would, what would that be? I'm not a moonwalker. I, I don't hold any world records. I'm not a billionaire. I'm not on any New York Times bestseller list. I've never discovered an element I've not founded a university or colonized a new world. No equations bear my name or anything like that. Contrast that with Jesus. Just in the first eight chapters of John, he had already taught with unparalleled understanding. He'd worked miracles and he'd demonstrated supernatural authority. In other words, there's 
a remarkable difference between someone seeking their own glory who doesn't have much glory and someone whose glory is exceptional. The second thing to see is that Jesus' glory isn't merely exceptional. There are people on earth who have exceptional glory. I'm not one of them, but Jesus' glory isn't merely exceptional grace. He is the Christ, the Son of God in the flesh, the maker and sustainer of all things. He is the one to whom all glory belongs. He is God and his glory is infinite in both quality and quantity. The difference between Jesus and me isn't a matter of degrees. It's infinite. The third thing to grasp, there's four. The third thing to grasp is that for God alone, being glorified is the highest virtue. Let me say that again, because if you've never heard that, this is life-changing. The third thing to grasp is that for God alone, being glorified is the highest virtue. God's infinite glory is tied to the fact that he is good and perfect in every way. There is nothing lacking, and he possesses all that is good. More still, it is what you and I were made for. We were made for his glory. It is the only thing by God's design that can truly and eternally satisfy us, which is what we all long for. Sin is seeking it in anything other than God. In that way, to withhold his glory, get this, Grace, this is a really big deal. To withhold his glory for God alone, uniquely for God, to withhold his glory is uniquely unloving, even as putting it on display is the highest form of love. The world needs the infinite glory of God. It does not need the paltry glory of Dave. And here's the final and most important thing for us to see then. And that is that Jesus described a conspiracy of glory between him and the Father in this passage. He did not seek his own glory, but the good news for you and I, in light of what I've just said, is that the Father did. And Jesus sought the glory of the Father in perfect harmony with all of their all might, continually. As the greatest expression of love possible, Father and Son were committed to putting the glory of one another on display for all the world to see and delight in and be forever blessed by. The real problem then, the Jews didn't get this, but you and I can now. The real problem then, entirely missed by the Jews, wouldn't have been if Jesus were glorifying himself or being glorified, but if he wasn't, if his glory wasn't being put on display, if he wasn't being glorified. Jesus not seeking his own glory would have been tragic if the Father were not seeking it for him. And so once again, it is only because Jesus is God that he is infinitely glorious. And it is only because he is infinitely glorious that his glory being manifest in the world and displayed is the highest form of love. And it is only because it is perfectly loving that the Father is right to work at all times to make it known to the world. And it is because the Jews rejected the first link in that chain, that Jesus is God, that they rejected every subsequent link and missed the highest blessing that God has to offer, the glory of Jesus. So Jesus honors or glorifies the Father at all times, even as the Son seeks, even as the Father seeks his Son's glory at all times. And here's, here's my favorite part of the sermon. What unspeakable joy it will be 
to enter into that triune praise that has gone on for eternity past and for eternity future. One of heaven's chief occupations, the thing that we will spend most of our time doing in heaven, is the perfect, unceasing, entirely right praise of each person of the Godhead for the others. Oh, to hear and join in that song, Grace. That is the great promise of eternal life that is ours. Jesus was inviting his hearers to join him in it at that moment. That's what he was doing. To accept Jesus' claim to be God is to accept his claim that he glorifies the Father at all times and the Father him. But to reject that claim is to be appalled by its audacity. Everything hinges on whether or not Jesus is God. And here's the last one. As we've seen, inseparably linked to his claim to be God, Jesus' first two claims are anything but small. They're massive all by themselves, but held up by a more massive claim still. I honor God at all times and in all ways, and I don't seek my own glory, but the Father seeks it for me. His third and final claim here is also so remarkable that the only claim underneath it sufficient to hold it up is the claim that he is God. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. To grasp that, we've got to ask two questions. Number one, what did Jesus mean by keep my word? And two, what did he mean by never see death? The bulk of the sermon from two weeks ago answered the first question. You can read that if you want a fuller explanation. But to keep his word is to abide in it. And to abide in it is to live entirely in light of it. Of course, none of us does that perfectly. And so that leaves us with wondering, what did he mean by never taste death? And how would we even possibly gain access to that? I've used this example with many of you, probably more than once. But imagine me telling you that I have a billion dollars for you that you're free to take possession of at any time. It might be good news right up until I told you that it happens to be in a suitcase on Jupiter. No matter the amount of money offered to you, it's not good news if you have no access to it. And so Jesus promising something as great, as grand as never tasting death sounds good. But if the way we gain access to it is to perfectly keep his word, then we're in trouble because none of us has or can do that. The good news, Grace Church, is that when we place our faith in Jesus and long to abide in Jesus' word because of it, because our faith is in Jesus, when we long to abide in his word because of that faith, through faith in Jesus, God is pleased to do for us what we could not do on our own, to unite us to the complete righteousness of Jesus and also begin to transform us that we might fully abide in Jesus. Through faith, God does for us what he requires of us. Who could make a claim like that but God himself? Everything hinges on Jesus' first claim to be God. But what does it mean to never taste death? This is the great offer of the gospel. In simplest terms, Jesus meant that everyone who trusted in him and sought to live by his promises will live forever in perfect fellowship with God. This This is a big deal. For for Christians, the body will die for a time. For all people, the body will die for a time. 
but the soul will live on forever to be reunited with a new and glorified body in the new heavens and new earth. Grace, this is what we need to understand. This is the true wage of sin. This is the type of death that God meant. True death is the death of both the body and the soul, not just the body. For Christians then, Jesus promised here that it is not death to die. It is not death to die. Our bodies may, but our souls will not. We'll live on with God forever and eventually be reunited with our bodies through faith in Christ. The Jews misunderstood what Jesus meant and locked in on that misunderstanding. So in verse 52, they said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. We thought so before. Now we know you do. Abraham died, and as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? In other words, Jesus, if anyone, anyone could rightly be said to be right with God, it's these guys, it's Abraham and the prophets. You say that someone who's right with God will not taste death, but they did. You're making claims you have no right to make, and on top of that, we're positive they can't be true. If these guys tasted death, who can avoid it? Well, Grace, if Jesus is not God, the Jews were right. Abraham is dead, the prophets are dead, and Jesus was wrong. Everything hinges on whether or not Jesus is God. But Jesus is God, and Abraham, the prophets, and all who truly trust in God is alive. Thus, Jesus could rightly say, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, the exact meaning of that isn't Entirely certain. What is certain is Jesus' main point. God is, not was, which Jesus made a point of saying elsewhere. God is, not was, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Abraham knows that Jesus is the fulfillment of his own greatest longing and joy for the Jews to really be Abraham's children then. They need to accept and rejoice in that which Abraham accepted and rejoiced in, Jesus. There is no immorality in me, Jesus said. I honor God at all times, Jesus said. And not only do I honor God at all times, but he honors me at all times too. And if you keep my word, you will never die. Recognizing the magnitude of Jesus' words, these claims, caused the Jews to ask the right question. Who do you make yourself out to be? And you're not yet 50 years old, but you've seen Abraham? And the time had finally come for Jesus to give the right answer, to give the answer that would change everything. Before Abraham was, I am. Just think, Grace. Just think. In conclusion of the blessing that pour out of these claims of Jesus, the description and example of fullness of life, living in the fullest love of God, never tasting death. This is what he was offering to all who heard. This is what he offers to us today. Rather than receive Jesus' words and accept his perfect example and join in the eternal glorification of God and live forever, without exception, the Jews rejected every claim that Jesus made in this passage. In response to his claim to speak the words of God, they said, "You are, are, are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? In response to Jesus perfectly honoring the Father, Jesus tells us that they dishonored him. In response to Jesus' teaching that everyone who keeps his word will never die, the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. 
In response to Jesus' teaching that Abraham longed to see the day when Jesus would take on flesh and rise from the dead, the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And in response to his claim to be God, they took up stones to throw at him. Our world is swimming in questions concerning morality and purpose and pain and suffering and Jesus answers every one of those questions and offers himself as a perfect example and solution to them. Every one of his examples and solutions, though, is rooted in the fact that he is God. The world around us, like the Jews in his day, has rejected and increasingly rejected Jesus' deity and therefore all that flows from it. And so let me close with the same challenge I gave last week. Would you take a moment right now? I'm going to pray in just a second. Just invite you to pray as well, to ask the Holy Spirit to help you decide once and for all whether or not to hang everything on this central claim that Jesus is God. The Jews rejected it entirely. And the question I have for those of you who don't, who believe it, at least in a certain sense, or rather than the question, the the thing I want you to consider is that seeds of that still live in all of us. To receive this fully is to spend your life chasing those down. Where yet are you rejecting the deity of Jesus? Every sin has its root in some form of that rejection. And so as we've seen, the only real options to this claim are to reject it outright and everything that goes with it, or to accept accept it and and obey all that Jesus commands in faith. John's gospel and the sermon were written largely to help you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and to find the fullness of life that goes with those things. May God be so kind to us this morning as to open our eyes or give us greater clarity of vision to this glorious and gracious truth.